1: As we emerge from a period of government-mandated lockdowns and as threats to free speech multiply, we would be wise to re-engage with the work of a seminal thinker on the subjects of liberty, freedom, and non-domination. We can do so most effectively by reading the 2022 book, Completely Free, The Moral and Political Vision of John Stuart Mill by John Peter Diulio. Mill, 1806-1873, for all his influence on fields such as philosophy and political theory has detractors aplenty. Conservatives consider him lukewarm on religious liberty, and even slightly hostile to religion generally, and a proto-hippie in his partiality for ideas about experiments and living. For their part, progressives aren't wild about Mill's emphasis on virtue and personal character. Libertarians distrust Mill's embrace of the state when employment of it, in Mill's view, fosters harmony and a feeling of security among the populace. Crucially for our discussion today... All of Mill's critics seem to agree that much of his thinking is hard to follow, and that he will say something in an essay or book that very much conflicts with what he says elsewhere. Diulio's book dissects the many critiques of Mill's social and political thought, and argues that Mill believed that society should aim for zero tolerance of arbitrary power and strive for the promotion and preservation of individual freedom. Given recent debates over personal freedom and bodily sovereignty issues, such as mandatory mask wearing and vaccination, and the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade, there could hardly be a more opportune time to drill down into Mill's writings on the various forms that domination can take. For example, domination is infantilization, domination is uncertainty, domination is diminution. Does Mill speak to us today, or is he a relic of the Victorian age in all his earnestness and lofty thinking? Diulio's book is a strong argument for Mill's relevance and continuing appeal. Diulio writes, Mill is dedicated above all to the idea that the chief and most significant solution to any of the ills that we face as human beings is a general cultivation of deep feeling and high aspiration. We learn how Mill managed to free himself of the mechanistic aspects of Benthamite utilitarianism in favor of a richer vision of human happiness that was friendlier to intellectual autonomy and love of the arts, while simultaneously demanding of the individual the pursuit of virtue and good character. Let's hear what John Peter Diulio has to say about the multifaceted Mr. Mill. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I am talking today with the author of the 2022 book, Completely Free, The Moral and Political Vision of John Stuart Mill by John John by John Peter DeLeal. Thank you for joining us today, John.
0: Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Hope.
1: I'm excited to talk to you. It was an excellent book, and I it's a, a figure that many of us have heard about and read about, but no don't know as much about as you do. So I'm glad to talk to you. <laughs> I'd like to start out with the title of your book. First of all, let's start with the words completely free. Is that a phrase of yours or Mill's or or what?
0: Uh, So you find that phrase in Mill in at least a couple places. You find it in On Liberty uh, in a couple places where, for example, in the first chapter of On Liberty, uh, when Mill was talking about uh, the various basic liberties that individuals must be uh, secured or guaranteed. Um he says that a society in which these these liberties are not protected uh, cannot or not completely protected, cannot be completely free. Mm-hmm. So that is those phrase, yeah.
1: Very good. Now, we'll get to another word in the title. I'd like to discuss the word moral. And that seems like a word that has fallen out of favor in the last several decades. I know that a hugely influential book in philosophy was the 1993 book, Making Men Moral, by the noted conservative legal and political philosopher Robert P. George. But do you, but I don't seem to see the word moral in book titles these days. Did you have to think about using the word moral, or does it come naturally to you?
0: Well, it certainly came naturally uh, to me in uh, writing this book and thinking about Mill in the sense that Mill is a, you know, moral theorist, theorist par excellence. I mean, he's uh, thinks very carefully and uh, concretely about the duties and obligations uh, that we have and has no trouble uh, calling these moral obligations. Uh, But I think that Mill, and we maybe we'll get into this as well, uh, draws something of a distinction uh, between morality on the one hand and what we might call You know, virtue or ethics on the other, Mm. that there are that morality is about the things we must do, we're compelled to do uh, by our duties or obligations, whereas issues of of personal virtue, personal excellence, individual flourishing um, involve ethics and considerations of value, but might not be uh, obligatory in the same sense. So I think that uh, what has fallen out of favor certainly is that. that 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 sense of morality in terms of value and virtue and thinking about what is necessary for uh, individual flourishing, whereas maybe you know the duties and rights that we have are still uh, referenced with some more frequency.
1: Thank you in your introduction to the book you refer to mill's work as musical and vigorous and that's kind of i wouldn't think that something that's about ethics and moral would be musical could you explain what you mean by that and did, i find it interesting that you say that his pro that you say musical and vigorous because as you so clearly say in the book many of his readers find him very difficult and eteliated <laughs> or dry i guess yeah
0: yeah, I guess well, that was uh, I put the word
1: musical in
0: there. Uh, I didn't mean it as a provocation, <laughs> but, uh, but I I definitely have, might have had a slight, you know one side of my mouth might have been twitched up in a grin <laughs> and I put that word in there because mill is often taken to be uh, a, a kind of a dry, uh, writer. he And certainly in his own time and, and thereafter, uh, he was considered by many to kind of be a, you know, stuffy uh, Victorian intellectual. He was called the saint of rationalism. Uh, he, many of his early contemporaries called him kind of a made man, that he was sort of a, he was kind of like a construction or product of his upbringing and didn't really have any sort of uh individual animating vigor energy to himself but on the contrary i find mills writing uh to be to be be beautiful to be i think yeah i think he has a felicitous pen i mean i think that his turns of phrase are extraordinarily memorable and, and musical in the sense that his words and phrases and the way he constructs his ideas and presents them uh kind of there's a there's a flow and flux to it that i find that's almost like listening to a great symphony, that you that you really feel. And this, I think, is indicative of this is maybe uh, suggests, you know, suggestive of his uh, early course in being part of a debating society where he had to learn to sort of work a room. And I think his uh, writing is uh, certainly illustrates that
1: i think it was gladstone who called him the saint of rationalism is that right that's that's really interesting because he's not exactly known for being um reader friendly and uh, uh, he's easy easy to digest himself but um uh and and then let's situate. speaking of gladstone let's situate mill in time in terms of his contemporaries i was curious i looked up the year i wrote i googled the phrase famous people born in 1806 and interestingly mill was the top of, of, of what came up which surprised me he 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 outranked elizabeth barrett browning which i thought was a little unfair to browning <laughs> but, uh, and the other one another one in 1806 was isabel kingdom Brun- brunel the famous engineer and i just know and i'll go on with this i just think it's kind of fun to see who, who he was surrounded by he was six years older than dickens and two years younger than disraeli uh could you give us a background on what was happening in british society that mill was reacting to in his writings
0: yeah so i mean mill uh you know lived through the mid 19th century which was a period of uh you know rapid unprecedented transition i mean mm. it was an era of uh, democratization mm. um it was an era of industrialization and it was an era you know of a lot of popular agitation uh for for uh for 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 the suffrage for various rights for the you know uh, limitations on government and mill really sits at the forefront of that i mean His uh, work on liberty, uh, 1859, um, is kind of a seminal timeless text, I would certainly uh, argue, and I hope I make that case uh, well in the book. Um, But it's also a very kind of timely uh, essay that he wrote. It it very much is of its time in the sense that he was, uh, Mill takes up the question of the relationship between the individual and government and the extent to which the individual should be uh, preserved, uh, from societal and governmental interference and that becomes a more pressing issue in mill's time because he also se- like you know this is this this is the influence of Tocqueville upon him certainly and mill came to a lot of these ideas himself as well he was concerned that, in a kind of flat in the he was concerned that that we were moving toward a kind of flattening mass society, mm-hmm. and that democratization, while a good, I mean Mill, I think, certainly saw uh democratization as something uh positive and to be valued, that it had a certain uh unique uh dangers that pose certain dangers and risks that had to be accounted for uh philosophically. And that, you know, obviously, and on liberty, that's the concern of you know, not you know, governmental interference, certainly, but also social interference, the censoring eye of the demos being, I I think I phrased it in the book as Mill was concerned about the individual existing in a kind of reverse panopticon, where the individual sits at the center of the social prison encircled by the monitoring masses. And so that concern, you know, very, is very much at the heart of On Liberty, and I think of a lot of Mill's work.
1: Yeah, how would you connect him to cancel culture in that respect? Because I, I thought of when you when you wrote in the book about the idea that he, he was very concerned about public pressure on the individual. And there's certainly a lot of that with the mob mentality and all of that. But at the same time, there's a reverse phenomenon in American society that in a way, and you also say in the book fascinatingly too, that that he's that he made the point that if you you could be people could if you were judged just calling out someone for, for immoral what you consider immoral behavior you're 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 considered a blue nose and a prude and a and a oppressive oppressor how how would you how would how would mill regard our own time in that respect um i mean i think
0: that i think i say in the book that you know that mill i think i phrased it as our illiberal tribalism that mm-hmm. uh that we see on that we see coming from a lot of different directions that he would regard it with a mixture of horror and resolve you know, oh, Mill. Interesting. Yeah, Mill was certainly not a defeatist. I mean, he. I mean, this is interesting too, because Mill is often uh, caricatured by certain critics as being kind of a, you know, rationalistic, uh, kind of progressive thinker. Um, and while he certainly had certain kind of hopes and ideals and a vision of a future society and future. Uh, ways of organizing society that he wanted to move toward. He was very much a rooted, grounded realist. I mean, he's he, it was for him, his moral and political vision, as I say in the subtitle, uh, was just that he was gazing toward a horizon that we have to walk toward, you know, oftentimes uh, uh, iteratively, uh, you know, taking three steps forward, f- four steps back, five steps forward. But he's, but, but, uh, so he was very much. He had a kind of realistic view, but I mean, I think he would definitely regard the tendency of, you know, in the, he would see in cancel culture uh, the a kind of domination of the individual uh, by society. That that the the the, the fear of uh, speaking one's mind uh, mm-hmm. and, and thus being um, in in some way uh, punished by society, such that one. Uh, become something of a social pariah. uh, That that really yokes the mind for Mill, and that fear that is exercised over the mind Mill would readily, you know, discern and predict, as seems to be the case, that individuals will self-censor and not speak out and and have a a fear of speaking against any particular uh, reigning orthodoxy, whether left or right. Um, so Mill would, be, Mill would be horrified, I think, by what is called cancel culture, um, but it would not be surprising to him. And oh. it would not be, yeah, it, he would see it as something that is you know, utterly uh, predictable when, there, when a society is kind of, if a society does not have a strong uh, moral liberal ethos, uh, that's kind of, and if a democratic society lacks a strong moral liberal ethos, that's kind of what predictably results for
1: Mill. It's interesting, I don't like to want to bring in his personal life too often because that you can I can do that to the to the detriment of his ideas. But to me, it seemed as I was reading and and as you were speaking just now about his own resolve that in his own relations with his future wife, Harriet Taylor, that he was seeing a woman on the side, and people would say to him, uh, this is really going to damage your reputation. You're treading you're you're, you're treading on, on thin ice here. And he was just adamant; he would just reject that. And as it turned out, it didn't seem to harm him at all. But it was interesting that he just utterly rejected any concern about that. Although he although it's not like he trumpeted it either to the world, too. So he yeah, he kind of had he kind of lucked yeah. out in that respect. And
0: yeah, I mean, he, I mean, certainly, I mean, it, it cost him in the sense of his personal relationships. I mean, and part of this. Uh, you know it's I'm not gonna you know psychoanalyze mill necessarily i'm not uh <laughs> perhaps not qualified but uh you know he was he was very um, as you're right, he was very adamant about the relationship certainly after uh Harriet's husband uh passed and they and their relation and you know they were seeing each other uh before that uh make, having, uh, you know, having meeting and and you know talking and having what we would refer to as dates, you know before <laughs> before her husband died, but after he died, it became you know a public fact that they were what we would call an item. Mm-hmm. And uh, his family, uh, before her husband died and afterwards, his siblings, uh, you know, questioned him, shieded him in certain ways. And I mean, he was he responded, you know, quite angrily. I mean, he basically by the time by the end of his life, he had basically cut himself off from his immediate family. Uh, he had lost a lot of his like early utilitarian philosophical radical friends like John Roebuck. I mean, he had lost yeah. uh, some certain friends um, and he knew that he was an object of kind of, you know, uh, gossip and, and uh, that, that people were kind of speaking about him behind his back. And I think that while he certainly uh, bore up under it and didn't allow it to uh, affect the way he was going to live his life, it definitely to a certain extent isolated him uh yeah. from others. by the end of his life he was he his his intellectual and social you know correspondence and interactions i think had diminished to a large degree oh that's uh, interesting yeah i mean he actually he you know he you know he he spent really the last years of his life just kind of living out his life writing um he's you know he spent some time in parliament but his really is only sort of his 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 contact was with his stepdaughter uh helen and um that was basically kind of the main, uh, you know, uh, relationship and consolation of his later life.
1: Well, I should make clear that he said there was nothing improper about his seeing her. Right? I mean, in terms of intimate intimacy, yeah. but he, but, but he, he, that yeah, so he, I, I shouldn't accuse him of being an adulterer because he doesn't see
0: Right, me. right. He make, he makes very clear in the autobiography that the relationship was platonic. Hmm. Um, yeah.
1: But, but speaking of him, of him bridling against societal um, pressures another fascinating thing in your book was that he 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 did not go to uh, so, like so many of his contemporaries most of his l- l- intellect well not most of them but many of his in- intellectual o- o- interlocutors o- o- <laughs> were oxford and cambridge men whereas because of the fact that he was not a member of the church of england he'd been for re- l- religious tests he was not allowed to go to oxford or cambridge or any university except attending lectures at the university of london i believe and And that, could you talk about the fact that do you think that benefited him or or did it isolate him further socially because he didn't have a cohort of young male friends that he might have had at college? And yeah, I mean
0: he he goes into this, you know, in his autobiography and in you know there are great biographies of Mill as well. Uh, You know, uh, just uh, Richard Reeves' biography, Victorian Firebrand, is just fantastic. And and talking about Mill's early life on this front, Um, I mean Mill, it's it was interesting. Mill, you know, started out. Uh, very much uh, isolated by his father Mm. from society, (laughs) his, 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 as is, you know, well known, and kind of uh, among people who, you know, read and study about, you know, Mill in the 19th century, he was a, his education was a, it was an experiment, basically, kind of a rigorous uh, experiment, which the 20th century philosopher Isaiah Berlin called an appalling success. (laughs) that's you yeah, know, he, he's kind of the
1: poster boy for homeschooling I would say at this right. point.
0: I mean so, so when John Stuart Mill was born his father James Mill who of course was very close to Jeremy Bentham one of the kind of the leading philosophical radicals of the time uh, wrote to his friend who had just had a son as well and he wrote he said to his friend uh, well, you know let's have a you know well disputed contest uh, to see you know uh, who can educate their son and and uh, uh, more effectively and then in 20 years time we'll you know compare our uh we'll, 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 we'll compare our charges and see who and see who did the better job uh and of course you know this is this is unfair if you imagine that john stuart mill may have had a uh you know natural reservoir of ability and intelligence that is yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> that, that far outstrips the the, the regular person even um, his
1: photographs look like this walking brain looks- oh yeah
0: well that's what he was you know and and um you know he He even says, though, this is kind of interesting, he says in his autobiography uh, that when, so he, you know, he went through this rigorous education under the homeschooling of his father, James Mill, you know, he was, you know, reading Greek and Latin by the time he was, you know, six or seven, he was, you know, had devoured. He was more well read at the age of 10 than most of us, any three of us are in our entire (laughs) life. And uh, when he first started entering society and kind of, you know, taking trips and he visited... Uh, you know, he 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 attended certain lectures and visited Bentham in France and did other things. And his father, walking through Hyde Park, kind of told him. And Mill Mil claims not to have even known this. That his father explained that uh, because you have a father that took the time and trouble, uh, you know, to educate you properly, <laughs> uh, you're going to find you have. Uh, abilities and you know things that most people even your seniors and elders you know cannot do and do not know and uh and mill was you know uh, ostensibly surprised by this but uh, he, he says he says uh in his autobiography he says uh you know and, and this i do not believe this you know redounded to my this was this was not a credit to me uh because you know first of all it was only because i my father took the time and trouble but also um, that this this is this is this would be possible for anyone because if I have been you know very gifted with you know natural abilities or intelligence uh I, I you know, then that might explain uh, why I was able to go through this and come out the other side but indeed i am I am lower uh, I am lower than the average in these regards which seems to be a uh, uh, so- something of a false modesty because actually there's a letter that, uh bentham i believe wrote to his brother i believe where he said where when mill was visiting him during a summer i believe uh jeremy bentham wrote to his brother uh this the, the young to, Mill has, to, to,
1: has to bentham's brother or to mill's brother
0: to bentham's brother oh, right. so, i think samuel bentham i believe is mm-hmm. his name and jeremy was writing to his brother about you know the young john mill who was staying with him and he mm-hmm. said that the young mill has the pride of lucifer <laughs> oh, so interesting. and that was mill as a young man mm-hmm. uh but as Mill grew up, I mean, this was this was really this was really kind of one of the um, aspects of Mill's life that was most that, that comes across very clearly in his, in his biograph in, you know, biographies of him and in mm-hmm. his own autobiographical writings that you know a, a great part of his development into his early adulthood. Uh, was finally, meet, you know, meeting people and making social connections, mm-hmm. and you know, finally, and and you know, developing along those lines. And the people he met and the friends he made, you know, had you know tremendous influence and impact upon uh, his own thinking. And so it was, you know, he you know, he was isolated very early on, but throughout the rest of his life, um, you know, for the most part, kept up a very rich. Uh, social and intellectual uh, life and correspondence. I mean, he was, he, I think he describes at one point, you know, he'd be, he'd be walking to parliament down the street and he'd run into three or four friends along the way and they'd fall into conversation. And then, you know, they'd depart down a side street as he kept making his way, uh, uh, you know, to, to Big Ben. So um, yeah, I mean, I think so. Mill certainly was isolated early on. I think he was relatively isolated by the end of his life, but I mean, his life was, you know, full of, you know, it's, it's a who's who of, you know, 19th yeah. century intellectuals. And and many of those relationships, you know, were extraordinarily impactful upon Mill uh, and probably, you know, vice versa.
1: Yeah, you refer in the book to his life as being action packed, which I thought was kind of interesting, because I always thought of him as secluded at the East India office and in his study. But, but yeah, if you're a member of parliament, presumably you are Pretty active, involved with other people. Although he did, he did, he did have a haughty, a rather haughty view of of his position in parliament. He, for example, he he wouldn't let people, he, he wouldn't contribute to his own campaign. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he didn't. He had to be dragged into standing for parliament. He wouldn't address. Public meetings, which is a little bit of a strange considering his view of social sociality and also the democracy. He was a very aloof member of Parliament. He basically had, I have these ideas, and I will be in Parliament if you want me to be, but I'm not going to glad hand. I'm not going right. to be Johnny, you know, happy Johnny kind of thing. But he,
0: he didn't want to be a politician. I think mm. is the, the bottom line. Yeah. He wanted to be a philosopher, and he wanted to, you know, he wanted there to be a a, a true philosopher in Parliament. Mm. Um, I think is kind of the bottom. But he was, interestingly, I mean, he was a, uh, when speaking to the public, I mean, he was he, extraordinarily, I think he had an extraordinary uh, integrity um, in dealing with and talking to the public. There's a famous story of him uh, speaking, he had at some point written earlier in his life uh, that, you know, the working class, uh, that, 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 that they have a tendency toward kind of, you know, lying and deceit and laziness. He had, you know, he, he, he wrote this earlier in his life um, whether that's a view he maintained is, uh, another question, but he was speaking to a group of, uh, kind of, you know, the working class and they, they asked him, you know, they held this up and said, mm-hmm. did you write this? And he, he responded very casually. Yes, I did. And they gave him a standing ovation. <laughs> Because they they you know were so used uh, to you know uh, people sort of you know uh, you know deceiving them and lying to them and you know trying to manipulate them, so the fact that he told the truth and was honest uh, was very impressive <laughs> to them. They knew they knew they could trust him at least to be to have that kind of integrity.
1: Well, given his, you mentioned Jeremy Bentham, and I it, it should be made clear that in your book. In fact, probably the first third of the book, or at least the first, maybe the first quarter of it, I would say, is is devoted to threshing out his 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 utilitarian beliefs, his relationship with Bentham, and the very minute and discerning difference, uh, fascinating study that you make in in great detail about where his where he diverged and where he where he agreed with Bentham. And one thing that was fascinating too is that. You talk about his his nervous, famous nervous breakdown in a, at the age of twenty in eighteen twenty six, and you, you you posit, although was, uh, sl- um, maybe tentatively, that it was because he realized that he was a greater mind and a greater thinker and than Bentham was, and that was kind of a shock because he'd been taught or demanded by demanded of. By his father that you will basically worship this man and you will carry on with the utilitarian project and could you talk about what what was going on there i don't know you don't want to do psycho, psycho dramas, but so. right?
0: No. well i mean uh so that explanation about uh realizing that uh, i think it was uh, who was it um I, I i believe it was elijah milligram who wrote um about mill that that part of the explanation that he speculates that part of the explanation for mill's breakdown uh was realizing what uh milgram calls the uh, vis-a-vis mill that mill what mill viewed as the low intellectual quality of bentham's thought and writing mm. um so i i throw that in there in the book as kind of when i'm uh explaining one of the differences between uh mill and bentham on the issue of uh having a where where Bentham I make the point that Bentham uh that Bentham was Bentham's philosophy was uh to a certain extent it was to a certain extent uh kind of cramped by the fact that he didn't take other intellectual influences seriously and didn't take other philosophers uh seriously Mm. and criticize him on that front and that so I make the point that, that that may have even been part of Mill's uh, uh, reaction to Bentham at the age of 20 in 1826 uh, but i think the main uh, reason for mills breakdown in 1826 was that he recognized that what he called the the you know his internal culture uh was entirely vacant and lacking that he realized he had no desire for uh, the ends and goals and ideals that he had been up to that point in his life uh pursuing quite vigorously so you know, mm. he was he was raised to be uh, this, you know, uh, you know, shining, uh, you know, warrior for the philosophical radicals, the utilitarians, and pursuing, you know, legal social uh, reform along those lines, you know, uh, in the interest of pursuing, you know, universal, you know, happiness for all persons.
1: <laughs> the thinking and, machine.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. And and uh, so what he realized at age twenty part of when he he posed himself a question he says at age 20 and this is what he says in his autobiography that he asked himself if all the objects and ideals that you've been pursuing throughout your life were suddenly realized uh would this be a great happiness to you and he said this this, you know, answer just, you know, welled up within him, a decided no. And at that moment, he said, the, you know, basically the floor fell out beneath him and that the whole, his entire life no longer made sense to him. And he was kind of submerged into a deep depression um, that that lasted for a, a good long while. And he, he even, he insinuates at one point that he was close to, you know, self-harm or suicide. Mm. Um, and this is often, the thing is, this is often interpreted by by uh, Mill scholars to be kind of the, the 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 origin of Mill's break with Benthamism, where Mill suddenly realized that he did not uh, he did not endorse or agree with Bentham's philosophy. But I don't actually think that's the case. I think indeed what Mill again was realizing here was that he had no desire for these ends, the internal culture uh, that basically allows us, to see, to, to, uh, to observe and experience the, the objects ends, activities and goods we pursue with, with a sort of, you know, pleasure that, that propels us toward them, you know, taking, you know, looking at a potential good activity and object, you know, thinking of it with a certain, with a certain pleasure, you know, thinking of the, the idea of seeing the idea of it as pleasant, uh, because we have built up, because we have a strong internal life that allows us uh, to do that. Uh, that was entirely lacking in Mill because he believed that he basically had this emotionally barren uh, upbringing that where his entire where he was just kind of this this walking brain, as you said, and did, hadn't developed his emotions, his feelings, uh, his his sentiments, all those things that that make not only uh, uh, life uh, possible and the development of life possible, but indeed worth living. And yeah, so you he, make
1: the, you make the point in the book too that he, as you say inner culture that that his salvation was reading poetry and Wordsworth. That right so, right
0: so he he basically he says that uh, it was through the discovery of romantic poetry, uh, particularly Wordsworth where he. Uh, started to basically uh, engage in the engage in a kind of self-remedial education that had been lacking uh, in his early life um, that he developed feelings emotions sentiments and started building up a much richer, uh, more complex uh deeper more nuanced uh, way of thinking and feeling and seeing that had been absent uh, before because his father, you know, the, the utilitarians in general early on, but certainly his father had a very low view of poetry. He basically considered it to be a waste of time. And, you know, Jeremy Bentham said that poetry is, you know, prose where the lines fall short of the p- end of the page. <laughs> yeah, that was basically his, his view of what poetry <laughs> offered. And so that was basically absent. That, that kind of, you know, the, the uh, education in, you know, poetry, music, all, you know, everything that cultivates the feelings and sentiments was largely absent from Mill's early life
1: yeah when you talk about and the when you use that phrase that his writing is musical when he talks about the culture the cultural inner life is is he definitely was quite moving and making clear that he wanted everyone to have a deep cultural, rich intellectual life and I, I was curious I, I wanted to know what his pastimes were so I looked up and apparently he was a passable pianist and an amateur botanist so that was kind of interesting about he was very very much self-cultivation but that was very Victorian it was he he wasn't necessarily unusual in that was he I, I mean most no. Victorians were, were, were well-rounded at least the wealthy were but
0: yeah no he I mean he is very much you know I think a a, a man of the a man of his uh time and station in that way. I mean he I think the great love of his life, you know, certainly uh you know botany was one of his pastimes, you know m- music of course, but I mean he just loved nature. He loved natural scenery. He loved going into the country and you know taking he would take, you know, walk for, you know, 10 20 miles a day sometimes. Uh, when he was out in the country and just loved breathing in that, and and he he early on when he was visiting the country early on in his uh, life, when he started to develop, you know, to start start developing uh, that internal life that uh, had been denied to him early on, he 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 regarded. Uh, the countryside and, you know, nature is where, the, you know, the, the soul can breathe deeply and freely, that the mind expands in those circumstances. Um, so channeling, I think,
1: channeling Wordsworth again. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolute, ab- absolutely. And it's actually interesting that he... Uh, you know, he he his love and passion for words it was so personal for him mm-hmm. that he uh, he in his debating society, uh, he debated his friend John Roebuck on the relative um uh, merits of Wordsworth and Byron. And basically, Ro- Ro- Roebuck, when he was speaking on on behalf of Byron and in opposition to Wordsworth, was reading passages of Wordsworth and you know dismissing them with a scoff you know trivializing it basically you know uh th- th- you know treating it as kind of sentimental drivel <laughs> and mill was and mill never like barely ever spoke about his personal life uh in these debates but it, he was so he was so kind of you know hurt and threatened by what his friend Roebuck was saying and he 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 spoke very delicately about how wordsworth had helped him through a, a certain period in, of his life where you know every day felt like a kind of drudgery or something of that nature where mill mm-hmm. felt compelled to you know speak to speak of wordsworth's importance to him and, and, and uh, because it was it was it meant so much to him and now as mill went as mill continued throughout his life uh, wordsworth while he i think always re- retained a kind of admiration for wordsworth he uh, re- fell relatively, in Mill's estimation, uh, in re- in relation to other poets. I think by the end of Mill's life, he regarded poets like Shelley and Coleridge and Tennyson as being his preferred poets. But you know, Wordsworth was certainly you know his first love and a kind of turning point in his well, life.
1: Well, I think I think Wordsworth's reputation did fall in his own lifetime because his poetry. By some standards, was not as as passionate. I don't know if it was any less good. That's debatable, but it was certainly and he became more conservative. and maybe maybe Mill didn't go for that aspect of him well,
0: it was actually interesting because Mill um met Wordsworth at a certain point, <laughs> and he, he came back to his—I forget which friend he was talking to—but um, he—he—he—he he was like de- he was delighted and kind of like he was in the state of kind of you know, you know, agitated euphoria having you know, met one of his heroes. And he—he <laughs> he said, he said he spoke about how—and um, this is kind of a, a point in Mill's life where you know all these other influences were rushing in upon him, which made his early kind of course and you know utilitarianism seem very kind of you know you know dry and negative in comparison. So he talks about how. You know, uh, even though Wordsworth is kind of like you know this 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 conservative uh, individual, that my differences with him are all ones of kind of you know uh, uh, you know prudence and practice, whereas my differences with the with the utilitarians are ones of principle. <laughs> you know, so he actually, interestingly, and uh, this is again er- early on, so he may not have maintained that view throughout his life, but uh, early on he he. Not only fell in love with Wordsworth's poetry, but Wordsworth's whole kind of you know uh, his, his vision sort of resonated with Mill to a large mm-hmm. to a, a large extent at that point.
1: That's interesting. I, I love I love the fact that the poet's name was Wordsworth. That's almost per, too perfect a, a surname <laughs> for a poet. But you mentioned John Roebuck. Um you don't mention him so much in the book, because is, is that because he was? I mean, well, you mentioned a, a little bit about him that there was a break, but it, you didn't go into much detail. Was that is he a significant influence on on Mill, or and he's kind of oh, a forgotten figure? I don't think most people know about John Roebuck.
0: Yeah, I mean, so so uh, I mean, yeah, Roebuck is is you know for those who pay attention, uh, you know who who know who know a lot, I guess, about uh, the nineteenth century British life you know, he would be you know re- remembered to, to, to a certain extent. Um, but I guess I don't mention him as much in the book uh, just because I, I didn't want to bring in Mill's biography more than I had to. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to focus you know on the texts and kind of my my mindset was like, if if I was like on a deserted island and these books, you know, if I had never heard of Mill and these, his books washed up on the shore, you know, what would I make of them? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the mindset that I went into it with. Um, of course, I, you know, referred to obviously Mills, you know, intellectual background, his, his differences with Bentham and referred to his autobiography, uh, it referred to his biography, uh, when and when I thought it w- could help to, uh, you know, further elucidate or illustrate or cast shed light upon um, his philosophy. But I guess if it wasn't necessary to refer you know, to his, to his own personal life, I, I tended not to.
1: Well, I promise. In the rest of the interview, I'm looking at my questions in my hand, and most of them are about his ideas rather than his his okay. life. So, <laughs> so, so I will I will get now into the abstruseness part of of, of his life. Um, on your reading of Mill, how is and you talk about his own intellectual influence and his greater reading than Bentham? How would you say that Mill is like Aristotle and unlike Bentham, and how is Mill unlike how like Bentham and unlike Aristotle?
0: Mm, yeah, excellent. Um... So uh, so I guess through, throughout the book what I tend to do certainly I think throughout the book but certainly through the first couple chapters and even into the third chapter is kind of use Bentham as a foil for Mill that like w- where Mill goes can be defined in relation to how he criticized and broke away from Bentham so f- so for example um in Mill's value theory so this is kind of the you know sort of the uh the you know, where it all begins for Mill, the, 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 fir- the, the first principal question of his practical philosophy is, you know, what is intrinsically valuable? You know, what is the good? You know, what is the sumum bonum, the greatest or highest good? Uh, so for Bentham answers that question as pleasure, right? So that that's that, uh, agreeable feelings or sensations, agreeable mental states, one might say, Um, is kind of the, you know, the the alpha and the omega of life, it's the raison d'etre of life, it's it's the only thing of intrinsic value, all other things are means to pleasure, and that pleasure um, is to be evaluated or measured purely quantitatively, so things like the intensity of the pleasure, the duration of the pleasure, uh, that having more pleasure rather than less in a quantitative sense is what happiness uh, is all about. So, if this, if the, if the ultimate good, of what we're all seeking is happiness, happiness is pleasure, and pleasure is to be measured uh, quantitatively. So, as most people might know, and many people might know, uh, Mill first, you know, dis- disagrees with this in the sense that he introduces a qualitative dimension to pleasure. So he says that pleasure is not merely to be measured. Uh, quantitatively, it's also to be measured qualitatively in in Mm. terms of the kind of pleasure it is, that there are higher pleasures and lower pleasures, Mm. and that higher pleasures, you know, are of the, uh, you know, mental variety or of the human variety or appeal to our higher faculties, uh, whereas the lower pleasures are, uh, can can be relegated to being about, you know, mere sensation, kind of a, a mere sensuality. Um, now, the, the trouble this causes for Mill, of course, philosophically, and you know that you, mm-hmm. you can't pick up a book on Mill's uh, utilitarianism without running into some version of this of this issue or question, you know, how can Mill introduce a qualitative dimension to pleasure without giving up, uh, you know, pleasure as the end of life or what is called hedonism uh, altogether, isn't it, you know, what makes one pleasure higher than another if it's not either it being more pleasurable in a quantitative sense, or it having some kind of quality, feature, attribute, nature to it uh, that makes it, you know, higher or better than pleasure, that is appealing to some standard that cannot be reduced to a sort of hedonism. Uh, now, I argue in the book that, you know, qualitative hedonism I don't think is conceptually incoherent in the way a lot of Mill's critics uh, want it to be, but that nonetheless Mill does indeed. Uh, break away from hedonism and that Mill's that Mill's introduction of quality cannot be reconciled with a hedonistic view, that he, that he does indeed uh, move away from uh, Bentham's hedonism. But then the question, of course, then becomes, uh, so what sense are we to make of Mill referring, so you're, he does refer in chapter two of utilitarianism uh, to pleasure as the end of life, Right, so if he introduces, if he accepts pleasure as the end of life, as the kind of the uh, as kind of the standard of happiness, and if he introduces this qualitative dimension that can't be reconciled with hedonism, uh, what are we to make of this? Is his declaring pleasure to be the end of life uh, incompatible with what he argues, or is there some kind of deeper uh, reconciliation we can come to? And I think what he's doing, and I, this is kind of the argument. I make in, the, la- in uh, the latter part of chapter one of the book, what he's do I think what he's drawing upon is the notion that, ple- that pleasure is not extrinsic to the good life. It's essential to the good life, but it's kind of a byproduct of pursuing or realizing the good. And pleasure, in order for something to contribute to one's happiness, pleasure has to supervene upon the good or activity that one is pursuing or engaged in. Such that, you know, I do something for its own sake, you know, taking a walk, going to the opera, playing chess, and these goods and activities can be intrinsically valuable and intrinsically worthy in the sense that they appeal to and engage our higher faculties um, in activities that kind of have a certain, you know, quality or feature or attribute that make them uh, desirable, Um, but that doesn't contribute to the good life for milk, it's not just engaging in those activities themselves, we have to, you know, derive pleasure from that pursuit, from those goods and activities that they have to be pleasing to us. So the reason that milk, I think, can indeed coherently claim pleasure to be the end of life, is that the goods and activities that are going to appeal to different individuals are going to be different. And of course, this is getting into you know, on liberty and his theory of individuality that if the goods and if pleasure needs to supervene upon the good, but if the goods that appeal to different individuals are going to be different, then indeed we can talk about, you know, pleasure as being sort of the, you know, that, that's kind of, that, that's sort of, you know, that's the sign or signal, right, that for a particular individual that they're realizing their particular, uh, you know, their particular happiness, Uh, Because they're not engaging a good or activity that appeals to this or that some other individual, they're engaging in a good or activity that appeals to them, and thus they derive pleasure from it, and thus they uh, can live happily. And that's a very, I think that's a, you know, Mill takes that notion of pleasure being intrinsic to the good life, but being what supervenes upon the good. So pleasure is ultimate, it's essential, but it is not itself. Uh, what the good is? And the good is the activity of the higher faculties in accordance with the higher pleasures, and pl- and pleasure has to supervene upon that activity for happiness to be realized.
1: Well, spe- speaking of the ultimate good and virtue, and we, we we discussed Aristotle. Can we now discuss the other big A, which is Aquinas? Does he? Did is there any evidence that Mill read Aquinas at all, or? And, and was yeah. he influenced? He, I think there's a small, a slight reference in your book to natural law. How did, did did Mill have any any relation to natural law thinking? He's he's cited by Robert P. George, occasionally in his public speaking, but mostly about um, Mill's ideas on liberty and free speech rather than philosophy. Is there is there a connection at all between Mill and how was he regarded by conservatives, other natural law thinkers, and and other conservatives?
0: Right. Well, I so to get to your first question, I don't recall there being any place, I don't recall Mill referring uh, to Aquinas in any kind of uh, constructive way where, you know, I, I, I'm not sure there's any evidence that Aquinas was an influence upon Mill or that Mill read Aquinas very closely. I could be wrong about that. I just I just I don't recall uh, that, but I think they're definitely, you know, but in that Aristotelian, kind of Thomistic tradition of kind of the, the good life uh, being that, you know, that in both of those cases, right, that, that pleasure supervenes upon the good for both Aristotle and Aquinas, there is uh, a kind of resonance there. Um, the other question about how conservatives, you know, relate to Mill or regard Mill, I think the key distinction to make is that there are the reasons that conservatives typically think or imagine they have uh, for taking issue with Mill um, and the reasons that they you know, actually have or ought to have <laughs> for taking uh, issue with Mill. Uh, so typically, right, if you look at kind of conservative critiques of Mill, um, you know we can go down the line that you know, his value theory begins with hedonism. But, you know, and ends up with a kind of, you know, that's the, the start of his value theory and it kind of the, it, 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 this, the summit of it is a kind of, you know, uh, self aggrandizing, you know, antisocial kind of atomistic individualism. Hmm. Uh, so, in his, you know, moral theory, that he was, you know, while again modified and different from Bentham in various ways, he was a, you know, a consequentialist, he was a, a Benthamite consequentialist. Uh, in his liberal theory with the harm principle that he's, you know, drawing the strict dichotomy between the individual and societies, offering us a, you know, libertarian radical principle of non-interference. And then he
1: also, I was just going to say that I did find it confusing as a reader to under, not, not of your book, but of Mills thinking that he would talk about the, the individual being paramount individual liberty, but also he said, and if you're free, you will have more time to make society better and that you're it's so could you could could you explain the to to listeners the the, the seeming con, con well i interrupted you you were doing it actually but the contra the contradictory the contradiction between sociality and the individual is the center
0: right so what i was so what i was uh saying there, So what i was uh leading up to was that you know those, oh, oh yeah that's fine that's fine um All those those reasons I just listed for conservatives taking issue with Mill are reasons they might think or imagine they have, but I don't think that those criticisms I don't think are true to Mill, um, even remotely. Um, I I don't think he was a hedonist. Um, I don't think he gives us a kind of self aggrandizing, atomistic, antisocial individualism. Um, I don't think he was a Benthamite or even really a consequentialist. I don't think the harm principle is kind of a principle of radical non-interference, so those are all, I think Mill can be kind of, you know, can can be uh, acquitted on all all of those charges, but there are other reasons we might get into that uh, conservatives might take issue with Mill, but to get to the question uh, you just asked about individuality and sociality so I think for mill right I think this is his rejection of psychological egoism which he's often been accused of being a psychological egoist or a psychological hedonist um, in fact I think male places um, strong kind of you know co-equal emphasis upon individuality and sociality as being uh, part and parcel of of the good life and being and being, and both we have to both develop the individual and social aspects of our nature in order to be a fully developed you know well rounded uh happy person that we have to that it's not just about you know he, he defines in you know, one of the, again this the, the these the, the, the critiques that come of Mill often come because People are Mill sounds one way in a certain set in a certain setting or a certain text because he's responding to a particular problem or answering a particular question or speaking to a particular concept like individuality and you know leaving the other half out even though he's not contradicting it or devaluing it. So, for example, in On Liberty. He says, you know, the only freedom that deserves the name is pursuing our own good in our own way. Now, that sounds like a very kind of, you know, self-referential, individualistic statement. But that to Mill, it, Mill there is just defining, you know, w- the individual side uh, of, of happiness. But we can't, but part of, uh, but pursuing our own good in our own way ought to include, does include all of the, you know, social values and social desires we ought to have and also excludes uh, harm and harming others and harming society, uh, which I, as I as I read that in uh, chapter three of my book for Mill is, is in the most basic sense uh, harm for Mill is a kind of you know injustice that we can't act unjustly toward uh, others. Um, so, but the reasons I, I think the I think the reason why a I think if a conservative was going to take issue with Mill. I think the, you know, the place to do it, the place where you're going to have the most traction and where you can really press Mill is on his refusal uh, to consider, you know, he he out of hand rejects, you know, the possibility of, you know, morals legislation, morals laws. Mm -hmm. Um, So what's interesting about Mill and what I find so fascinating about him is that he really is working out of, what Isaiah Berlin referred to as, you know, the central tradition of Western thought. That that political society exists properly and naturally, uh, not merely for, you know, life or for guaranteeing rights or for, you know, preventing people from bumping into one another and violating one another's, uh, uh, you know, life, liberty or property as Locke would have it, but indeed, ultimately, and thus in some sense, some teleological sense, primarily for the sake of the good life, that institutions, laws, society uh, ought to be organized uh, principally for the sake of individual and social flourishing. And that is interesting because what Mill then does, right? So you know, Mill then tries to build a kind of strident, thoroughgoing, uh, liberal view of society uh, out of that tradition of thinking, that he's a liberal, not because of any appeal to abstract right, not because of any appeal to the, to a social contract, uh, not by any appeal to uh, you know kind of um, you, know, uh, you know you know reason or anything like that. it's it's that he, that his liberalism, he believes he's constructing a liberalism that he believes is vital to the flourishing of the individual and society and what's inter- so what's interesting there and where you can press mill is you know he when he when you find, when you when he gets to uh arguing in on liberty that individuals ought not be interfered with uh for you know for, for any reason other than harm that you can't interfere with them you know paternalistically uh simply because you believe they're acting in a uh, in a in a vicious or low debased uh, fashion or they're wasting their lives or they're dissipating or they're not you know uh, you know per, per, they're not pursuing the right goods or the right ends they're not living well
1: yeah at this, measure- at this point I just I wanted to say I'm sorry to interrupt but you're doing such a marvelous job in the book of quoting just exactly the right people or obviously the but but in the right the, the the most amusing or the most telling ways and you have this wonderful passage about what you were just saying about um the individuals right and the don't we shouldn't interfere and you had you quote james fitz james mm-hmm. stephen uh, addressing a pimp in in mill's voice and it's really funny it's just i wanted to I, I, if i had time i would read the whole thing but yeah. he just says this kind of voice of of being mill talking to the pimp about i don't really want to interfere with your lifestyle and it's it's very admirable in its own way but maybe you might want to consider some other some up some alternative path to your conduct but i don't want to i don't want to push that on you and it's, it's just it's just very rollicking and funny and yeah and, and I mean, you can see
0: I- <laughs> Oh, sorry. Go on.
1: No, I was just gonna say I wonder what your reaction and did you laugh as you were writing that? Oh, yeah. That?
0: No, I, I include that whole passage, because I just found it so amusing and I say, uh, after quoting that passage, you know that if, uh, if you know Stephen is you know, if Stephen is Aristophanes here, you know clearly Socrates. You know, from Aristophanes, the clouds that he's just he's mocking him scathingly and relentlessly, but also very humorously for kind of his impossibly circumspect attitude toward all so-called you know experiments in living, and that's you know, and that's you know, you know Stephen you know kind of you know hits that hits a nail on the head there in a sense where you know there's you know that, you know, is, you know, whether or not Mill there is making some kind of category error between, you know, intellectual virtue on the one hand and moral virtue on the other. I mean, Mill clearly believes, as any Aristotelian would, that uh, the development of of virtue is all about, you have to be habituated and educated and cultivated properly in order to lead lead a good life. Mm. And that knowing what the good is, you know, it's, you know, he's, he's, uh, you know, knowing what the good is, is not sufficient if you don't have the kind of, uh, 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 you know, proper moral makeup in order to, uh, in, in order to exercise your uh, faculties properly in accordance with the good. And so there's, it's kind of like, you know, what's, in what sense will persuasion or exhortation uh, be at all efficacious um, with people who don't, who don't, ha- who don't have the kind of virtues and excellencies that a person needs to have in order to act well and to act well with pleasure. And I think you know, Mill, of course, there's that point on you know, liberty, maybe the most controversial uh, passage uh, in, the, in his essay and perhaps in his entire corpus, where he says that, of course, you know, he says, oh, of course, my my doctrine of liberty, this harm principle that's that that's that the individual should only be interfered with when they're acting harmfully, or as I would interpret that unjustly. Uh, this does not apply to people in the immaturity of their faculties, he says. It does not apply to what he calls, you know, children or barbarians. Mm. Now, so, and that kind of gets to the fact that, of course, children, you know, they need to be cultivated, they need to be educated, they need to be brought up in a certain way in order to exercise their higher faculties um, in accordance with the higher pleasures. But the question then arises, and it's a—it's an interesting, and this is where, I, again, I was kind of getting to this, where a conservative could really, I think, press Mill on this point and have some traction. Um, that, you know, what about, if we're, in, if we're just, you know, positing that theoretically, that's true, that let's just follow Mill for the sake of argument, that his doctrine of liberty does not apply to individuals in the immaturity of their faculties. Okay, well, that then applies, as he says, to, you know, barbarians, which, you know, ostensibly Mill would say, you know, exist in, you know, lower states of society, certainly not you know, certainly not Britain, but, you know, as he was, but other other places out there, you know, uh, and this, of course, applies to children who exist in lower and higher states of society, right? So children are, if you have a society, you're going to have children, but he doesn't really, but what about those, you know, barbaric or childlike adults that exist in a higher state of society? What about those individuals, those, 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 those individuals who have obtained, you know, the age of reason, but who are still in the immaturity of their faculties? This is, you know, whatever we want to say about that, you know, whatever arguments you know outside of Mill we want to make about that. For Mill, theoretically, this is a really interesting issue because his basic response to this, right, is like, well, if he, he he says in On Liberty, if society allows, you know, individuals to grow up mere children, uh, society only has itself to blame okay, we might concede that society only has itself to blame, but does that bar society from remedying its errors? Does it bar an entirely new generation from from uh, from, from rectifying uh, past injuries, wrongs or, or neglect? and and is it society as a whole? or what if someone just comes from had you know a bad early life, uh, has had bad influences? it's not society as a whole that is to blame necessarily but only particular parts or aspects of society so why can't other as- why can't other uh parts of society uh you know st- step in uh when the individual is clearly you know uh, dissipating or clearly acting in a you know, a- acting in a, uh, a a vicious or low debased manner, and and that's theoretically for Mill is a real question. And he kind of, I mean, there's a sense in which Mill just like doesn't want to have it. Like he just doesn't. He he wants to kind of shove that issue aside, and 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 wants wants to push it into the wants to push it into the shadows. And so he kind of has these that
1: this, that, this, is, this, that, this, that issue being.
0: The issue being the question of an, an adult, not a child, in a I higher state of society who seems to be in the immaturity of their faculties. Mm. That's
1: what well, uh, me... uh, 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 I was going to say on that point, it's kind of funny because you talk about his, his reaction to, regarding people's children. There's that famous quote when he was in parliament and fed up with the conservatives, he, he wrote, he said, "All it, although it's not true that all conservatives are stupid people, it is true that most stupid people are conservatives." Right. <laughs> he, he had a, a, quite a number of people that he regarded as as uh, in, uh, as maybe not worthy of public admittance to the public square <laughs> on his level.
0: Well, I mean, interestingly there, I mean, that's a, you know, uh, I think uh, in Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind, you know, he opens the book with that quote and sort of, you know, so, so Mill is framed and cast immediately as, you know, the great enemy of conservatism and as being, you know, the overflowing font of the absolute worst of, you know, modern liberalism. But one little thing on that, because Mill, I think in that, I think on that, when Mill was saying that he was referring to the conservative party.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, so yeah. It wasn't,
0: yeah, he wasn't referring to like people who were conserv who had conservative views. He was referring to the members of the other parties. So he was kind of it was he was speaking in kind of like a you know a uh, uh, you know uh, provocative partisan fashion. I mean, Emil had. I mean, you know, I mean he 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 kept up a you know a a, a had a deep and rich appreciation uh, for conservative intellectuals. Um, so I I you know while it was. Perfectly uh, understandable and, and irresistible uh, for someone like Kirk to begin his book with that, and of course that line is always going to be trotted out when people need to uh, kind of you know uh, frame Mill in a certain way. Uh, the context, I think, forgives him a little bit.
1: That's <laughs> so. true. I should I should have said it was in the midst of, a, of the debate. Oh no, right. the no, G- no, worries because
0: I mean Mill, you know that's I mean Mill de, Mill the, Mill the politician, right? Mill was. A staunch member of the liberal party and while he again his intellectual life and in his own personal philosophical views i think you can see elements of you know conservatism in in various ways but uh uh he certainly politically uh you know was was raring for the fight
1: (laughs) well at this point i just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with john peter diulio the author of the book completely free the moral and political vision of john stuart mill and now, John, can, we've we've, uh, we've covered very helpful. Was there anything more on that topic that you wanted to add? Or I interrupt you a lot, I know. So <laughs> oh, no, it's fine. No,
0: I just think that if, I guess my, my point there is that, like, if, you know, I don't think, you know, conser- conservatives looking at mail, I don't think it's, I think it's high time, let's say, uh, for conservatives to, you know, There's nothing wrong philosophically with bringing Mill to the table because Mill's not a hedonist, he's not an atomistic individualist, he's not you know a Benthamite consequentialist, he's not kind of a you know radical libertarian. In fact, on all of those scores, I think he has views and has his his philosophical output can be. That a conservative can find it not only resonant but interesting, helpful, and it, I think it. Uh, the the only real point of you know conflict, if you they were gonna, if a, you know conservative was going to have coffee with Mill, the point that I would uh, urge him to you know press Mill on is that issue of why you know obviously Mill wants to say right that like of course you know. Uh, you know, if if people are engaged in certain kinds of you know voluntary associations, friendships, families, you know, uh, churches, what what have you, that in those voluntary circumstances, uh, the, those parties can you know, if it's part of the relationship, right, those parties can more or less kind of you know uh, you know interfere in various ways with the individual's activity to kind of you know spur them toward uh, better conduct. But why can't you know why can't society why can't the law play a subsidiary role and i think that mill while mill i'm sure you know could you know has answers and wants to argue the point um that's where i think that's kind of the you know i, I it's not the achilles heel because i think mill has strong prudential reasons uh for resisting morals legislation but of course you mentioned uh one of my old uh teacher's uh, uh, professor george uh, who in his book making men moral he has he as well has very strong he he happily and eagerly concedes that there may be strong prudential reasons uh not to engage in morals legislation the question is why on in terms of prince why is it wrong in principle to consider the law or or social pressure as being out of bounds uh to play a subsidiary role in preventing individuals from you know, falling victim to, you know, various vices and various kinds of activity that are contrary to individual and social flourishing. And I just think Mill there, it's kind of the, you know, it's the weak hinge, you know, it's the place where the, where the welding is not quite what it ought to be mm-hmm. in his, in his philosophy. And that's, that's really where I would press Mill. But even, but once we get there, once that becomes kind of the locus of concern, I mean, we've already gone a very long way toward i won't say rehabilitating but you know seeing mill in, in a light that you know doesn't put him into any necessary antagonistic relationship uh with conservatism with conservatism writ large
1: well i think your book is very valuable and that's really one of the reasons you wrote it was to have all of these different camps and factions and f- schools of thought re- as discover him anew and you and you and you say very very helpfully to the reader that I just wasn't satisfied with with any of these critiques and that I wanted to, in, to summarize, encapsulate and, and bring in a new a new view. And I'd like to ask, now that we've dealt with the conservatives, um, I don't know if you saw it, but there was an interesting uh, news story about Nadine Strawson, the former head of the ACLU. She had a piece in The New York Times in the summer, I believe. And she said, she, she, she's shown in the picture wearing, with a red MAGA style hat that says, make J.S. Mill great again. Is, would, would you buy one?
0: <laughs> oh, oh, certainly. No, I think, I mean, I think Mill, you know, here's what I'd say. Like, uh, I've been asked, you know, I, I won't, I won't ask you to ask me, but I've been asked, You know, you know, many times you know, I, I think about this often too, like, you know, what am I, you know, liberal, conservative, what have you? And I often have, you know, I, I feel like I'm liberal liberal one day, conservative the next, and uh, maybe that means I'm something of a moderate, but I oftentimes think about that question in terms of like, if I wanted to, you know, who would I want, if I wanted to talk about the issues and problems and questions we're facing as a society, and I wanted to get the take of, you know, the great philosophers of the past, you know, who would I desperately want at the table? And I mean, like Mill is one of the first people that comes to mind because Mm. I think he and he, in a very interesting. I mean, not only was he just such a brilliant, capacious, nuanced uh, uh, person and thinker, but he also, as I was alluding to before, really in a very fascinating way to me, uh, bridges the gap between what again Isaiah Berlin referred to as the central tradition of Western thought about your political society existing for the sake of individual and social flourishing, uh, ultimately, and thus primarily, and a kind of, you know, uh, the kind of the modern and contemporary liberalism that we're familiar with, with, which is supposed to be neutral with respect to the good, you know, and Mill wants to argue that, you know, that you, you can have a very rich, thick, strong liberalism, and that is built entirely out of that central tradition and and from that point of view and so there's an interesting kind of you know one foot being on either side of this this of of this kind of thick line in the ground uh, that makes mill such a compelling figure for me
1: well well at the end of the book you argue that that he's a he's a, a a humane moderate and I just wonder, in terms of the kind of aggressive progressivism these days, where Mill's terminology is liberty and uh, freedom, whereas the progressives tend to say equity and justice. Well, although, although Mill discusses justice too, but how, do do progressives even address him, or do they know of him? I mean, they don't. They don't really engage with him, and they, in fact, they might just regard him. Oh, he's just another dead white male, and and. It, and, and also one more, qu- one more question in terms of he's kind of a he's, he's he's a classical liberalist liberal in a way that maybe Salman Rushdie would be his modern analog or or who would who who do you think of now as being Millite on the public's mm. public public's stage
0: yeah well I, I think the, the first to the first question about uh mill vis-a-vis kind of the the capital L left I mean I, I think that the the left and, and and progressives in general you know uh it, you know I, I don't i don't necessarily you know see them engaging you know seriously with mill but
1: mm.
0: in a sense like there's just a different story there there's a different narrative they have different you know intellectual uh, influences they're rooted in a different tradition right so the, the story i tell in this book is like you know you, ha- you have to follow along not follow not follow me, not, not understand what I'm saying, but like you have to be willing to see this story unfold and follow Mill's train of thought and logic and find it, you know, at least find it plausible, if not compelling. And, 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 it, and, it, you know, from the, you know, from looking at, you know, what do individuals as individuals, you know, desire in order to make them happy, you know, Mill plants that seed and it grows into this, you know, classical liberal, uh, you know, Republican. Uh, vision of of individual and social flourishing, and so that's a that's a whole story. That's a whole narrative that you know uh, is you know if you start from different premises, if you te- if you have a different kind of once upon a time, then you know the the story unfolds very differently. Um, I mean, you know, for, for Mill, right? It's it's everything begins. You know, I think. Uh, Richard Reeves, uh, in his book, his biography of Mill, helpfully says that, I believe it was Reeves, who said that Mill is a a liberal, a democrat, and a socialist in that order. Now, socialist does not mean for Mill, you know, kind of, uh, you know, state, kind of the state socialism that we uh, typically think of today. He was more uh, talking about uh, limitations or ways of curbing uh, the sort of you know laissez faire uh, capitalism uh, that was you know prevalent in the 19th century, which inspired obviously a lot of the more you know, radical socialist writings. But for Mill, everything begins. It has to you know come from liberty, affirm liberty. Nothing that violates individual freedom um, is acceptable. Uh, freedom in the sense of non-domination. That you know kind of a zero tolerant a zero tolerance po- uh, policy for arbitrary power. That, you know, Mill would rather, you know, Mill would rather see the world burn than, than give that up. But nothing, nothing ultimately good, nothing ultimately and truly and sustainably and enduringly good can come from any other it, w- without respecting uh, liberal justice and individual freedom. That those those two values uh, sit at the core, and even if they even if they seem to pose roadblocks or inconveniences uh, to making you know social political progress across certain dimensions, uh, the inconvenience or roadblock they pose is only apparent. That that nothing good truly can come uh, with with no, nothing good can truly or enduringly result uh that that does not uh, respect or originate in uh, individual liberty and uh, personal freedom those things have to be respected and sacrosanct if we're going to make any kind of true progress
1: well you, you make the uh, you make the point in the book that one of the most fascinating and i i wish i did let let left more time to go through all of them but you talk in the book about um his concept of domination and just read read some of what, what you had as as demoralization domination as demoralization as diminution diminution as enervation as infantilization as trivialization as trivialization as uncertainty and I wonder if you could pick out whichever one of those you think were really key because it was a fascinating section of your book and Mm -hmm. and uh because I hadn't thought about he, he so it's as you say it's very rich and nuanced and are those are those his terms or again are those are those your terms
0: um, I mean, these I I kind of slap these labels on. So I was what I was doing in this section. I think kind of the the context here is that so I I come at the end of uh in chapter four I make an argument that you know while Mill obviously you know understood individual liberty uh to be you know kind of how we classically what we classically understand it to be as kind of you know the freedom of the individual from interference and had various reasons for valuing it and even. Uh, protecting it, you know, uh, that ultimately his kind of his richest, deepest concept of freedom was what we might call non-domination, which I take this from another one of my uh, uh, teachers and mentors, uh, Philip Pettit, uh, where uh, liberty is not in that in those terms understood as mere you know freedom from interference; it's freedom from arbitrary power. Mm. Right, so it's freedom from from. Uh, being in a state or condition where some one, some institution, some you know society, what have you, uh, can interfere with you at will and with impunity across a certain range of interests. So, kind of the you know kind of the model of that would be kind of be you know a master-slave relationship, uh, where even if the the even if the uh you know the dominus or the despot Um, who holds the arbitrary power over you is not interfering with you, even if they're benevolent, let's even say, uh, they still violate your freedom insofar as they wield arbitrary power over you and interferences and on a freedom of non-domination understanding uh, interferences that properly are controlled by and track the general interests don't violate freedom because they, they don't instantiate arbitrary power. So what I'm doing in this section is that, you know, the question then becomes: Why value non-domination if you have a benevolent despot who gives you all the free reign you could possibly want to have? You know, why care if they're, you know, a dominus or a despot who holds arbitrary power who could interfere with you if they so chose, as long as they don't? Um, and of course, the you know classic traditional answers to that is: on the one hand, well, you know, there's if you're dominated you're not secure your liberty is at risk of you know arbitrary uh interference and on the other hand we might uh criticize dominate we might have, take issue with domination because it is a kind of status deprivation that's just a you know it's 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 not to be accepted to uh, be in the condition of a of, of a of a dominated party that is that is, it's it's undignified what have you uh that that uh, to be to be in that kind of condition that is is for a non-axial kind of you know uh reason uh to be objected to what mill does interestingly i think throughout his corpus and this is kind of the main archaeological <laughs> aspect of, of of my of my interpretation where i ha- kind of went through and had to like collect and collate various uh reasons mill has for objecting to domination. Uh, what he gives are reasons we ought to take, you know, reasons for valuing non-domination and taking issue with domination that are kind of en- they're ends-based in the sense that that where we where Mill explains in various ways why domination is contrary to individual happiness, but they cannot be reduced to interference. There are reasons for there are reasons that domination conflicts with, violates, undermines the happiness of the individual that doesn't have anything to do with the tendency of the of the dominus or despot to interfere with the individual. So for for example, so for example, to get to your get to your <laughs> your, your question, uh, so for example, something like uh, you know, domination is diminution, uh, where the where the despot or the dominus if they hold if if they have a kind of power over you, a kind of responsibility uh, for conducting or controlling or regulating or governing uh, a certain aspect of your life, um, that they have a kind of, you know, if all the sovereign power is, you know, is vested in a, you know, a, 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 di- a monarch or a dictator or what have you, and you don't have any kind of, say, you know, political uh, sway or control, um, that basically takes an entire arena of human activity, where the individual could develop, could cultivate, could exercise their higher faculties in accordance with the the higher pleasures of that particular uh, arena, and thus achieve, and thus and thus you know cultivate and develop their nature in a new and different and direction, and thus kind of augment their happiness, the, the, the their their flourishing, you know, kind of the you know the, the it's you know those branches on that those branches on the tree of happiness can thus you know kind of grow out and uh you know grow leaves and flourish well you know if if a despot you know say holds all political control and authority well those branches off the tree of happiness are snapped off you know if it it, it diminishes the extent to which one can uh develop one's uh nature it diminishes the extent to which one can exercise their higher faculties and thus diminishes you know, kind of ultimately what they can be as a human being. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's like one area where it's not that the despot is going to interfere with you in any particularly objectionable way. It's simply the fact that what you could as an individual uh, partake in and have responsibility for and develop yourself in accordance with um, is taken out of your sphere of influence. And thus you are to that extent uh, diminished in your flourishing.
1: Well, I just want to say, as I read the book that when he took when he, an, an extensive discussion of his views on um, auto- personal autonomy and freedom from arbitrary power, reading it in the middle of a pandemic after we've seen a, a lot of uh, well-meant, but clearly, clearly in some cases, excessive uses of arbitrary power that didn't even make sense scientifically. I, I don't want to get too political, but it just seems as though people could read could read Mill and talk about maybe we need to rethink the use of arbitrary power in emergency situations and I think that can you talk about about his value in that that it makes us what are what are we owed as citizens and what is our as you say at one point Mill would say well that's that's your own fault that you're not exercising your autonomy and yet you have to be a responsible citizen and care for others as so forth and so on so there he, he seems like the ideal thinker for such a comp so many complex debates about public health and individual sovereignty and free, free religious liberty which you quote robert george as saying he simply wasn't very interested in even in spite of the fact that he was a victim of a lack of it but he just wasn't that was not something that that really buzzed him particularly
0: yeah i mean i think you know he does refer to just a you know not just a uh, you know, uh, go off on that point for a second, he does refer, I mean, he, he refers to religious liberty and on liberty. I mean, he talks about how religious liberty is the one area where, where people have uh hitherto defended it on grounds of principle. Um He talks about, you know, later in the book about uh the importance of allowing uh for kind of religious education. So it, it was there, it was in the background, but he didn't see it as kind of like distinctively um, important, let's say, from other kinds of liberties. But um, to get to your point about uh, the pandemic and uh, COVID, um, I, I think reading Mill, if you know someone who takes Mill seriously, who is very invested in Mill's thought and thinks that he per- presents a persuasive uh, vision of uh, of the individual and in society and the two in concert, um, I think there are a few reasons why one and such, why such a person could be uh, concerned with or critical of, I me? Mean, again, I'm, you know, absolutely no, I'm a citizen observer of this as anyone else is, so I'm certainly no expert, but just in my own observations, uh, a few reasons why someone could be concerned. Um, I think, first of all, uh, in, the, in the public discussion about, you know, what to do about this as the pandemic was just getting underway, um, there, I don't think Mill would be sufficiently satisfied with the extent to which individuals kind of coveted their, their liberty, their true liberty. I mean, not, you know, obviously, there's the, you know, there's the kind of, I mean, Mill's not a libertarian, I don't think, so there's obvious, there was obviously that uh, aspect of the conversation, but uh, the extent to which th- there wasn't a sense that Liberty is something more than a kind of nice thing to have. It's a, you know, it's a, you know, it's, it, it's good. Well, it, it, it's good while it lasts, it's good to have it. It's a nice privilege. Um, it's, you know, it, but it's kind of, it's, it can be traded off rather easily against other concerns. Whereas, you know, Mill really wants to impress upon us the absolute essential, vital, critical importance of individual liberty and maintaining an atmosphere of freedom and, you know, and, a, and a, a strong aversion to and suspicion of kind of sweeping uh, limitations on individual freedom and spontaneity and activity that, that, that there ought to be a, a, a real, you know, while certainly Mill is the first to uh, confess and even, you know, uh, uh, trumpet that there are things we owe to society. There are plenty of things we owe to society. He's not a libertarian. He mm-hmm. believes that society has the has the authority and it, it's you know to even compel certain things from us. He was um, even
1: he even voted in parliament for capital punishment,
0: which was interesting. Mm,
1: and he yeah. even said he even said this may surprise people, but I'm voting this way.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and he you know and on liberty itself, he goes through various kind of positive interferences that the government can engage in, uh, where. The individual may exercise their liberty in that direction anyway, but the government can compel it for the sake of the social good. Um, at the same time, that's always on the other side of the ledger. What that's being compared to is a is a is a real thick, strong uh, uh, sense of just how vital and essential individual liberty is, and that it cannot be traded off against kind of uh, social concerns in a. Uh, in kind of a in kind of a, an easy fashion. Um, so I think there was a, I think that's the first thing that Mill would say that you know we you know just despite you know the uh, you know even despite the, the you know the risks and threats you know posed by uh, a burgeoning pandemic that our unwillingness and and the you know kind of the the, the uh you know, we we also we also feel much more you know uh we we also feel much more. Uh, uncomfortable than perhaps we do about uh, about about sacrificing our 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 individual liberty. I think the second thing on that point is that I think Mill would be concerned, and Mill would emphasize that whenever you're facing a question of you know, individual liberty versus some the promotion or achievement of some social good or the avoidance of some social harm. Like, you're not facing it de novo. Like, I think that is important for Mill that, you know, it's not that like every time we are facing a question, okay, should we have individual liberty or certain degrees of interference and social control in this situation? We're not choosing in that particular case for that particular case uh, with no reference to what comes before or after it. Mm. Uh, Not only is you know, liberty, kind of the kind of the first principle of justice, and thus we need to have a kind of thick attachment to it. Um, it also is the case that that you cannot interfere for Mill without in, in without implicitly or even ex- explicitly, you know, legislating, implying a rule of interference, right? Like, It's not like, you know, if you're going to interfere with individual liberty, there has to be an explanation as to why you're interfering. Mm. And that explanation becomes a rule or principle Mm. that has applications to circumstances um, outside of that particular scenario. And the question Mill would have us ask is, even if in this particular case, we think it's the case that, uh, you know, a certain degree of social control or interference could redound to the public good, in this particular instance, um, do we want to set a precedent? You know, what what rule are we implying here? And do we want to do we want to concede that power to the powers that be, or or despite the kind of the risks and dangers we have to face uh, if we don't uh, act in a certain way, um, is it more dangerous? You know, in, a, in, a, in a, taking a larger view of the situation, is it more dangerous uh, to set a kind of rule to, to set a precedent whereby a certain rule of interference uh, can be invoked in a vast array of circumstances, perhaps even on an arbitrary basis, and that may not even have limitations, and that is going to be uh, uh, used and conducted by prejudiced, corruptible, fallible, you know, ego-driven individuals who, you know, especially you know, who are who not because they're particularly horrible, but because they're human beings are going to exhibit, you know, are going en masse to exhibit all the worst traits of human beings. Um, And I think the third thing that he'd take, he'd be concerned with would be, I think the public discourse around the issue uh, for for someone who takes Mill seriously uh, was problematic. Um, Like, you know, obviously when it comes to issues of, you know, math and science, there's kind of a, 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 you know, that's not as concerning for Mill because there are kind of definite agreed upon uh, uh, ways of, of coming to kind of answers and consensus that are kind of, you know, demonstrable, empirically verifiable, falsifiable, what have you. Yeah. Um, and so in a sense, like, you know, I don't think Mill would take any issue with the fact that the scientific community uh, as a whole um, you know, kind of, you know, not coercively, but, but you know, just kind of pushes to the, would would, would naturally kind of ignore and push to the margins uh, anyone who wants to make the argument that smoking is not only not unhealthy, but the best thing you can do. You know, <laughs> anyone who says that, like, is, is going, I think there's a, there'd be a natural organic tendency to kind of marginalize uh, that voice because the scientific consensus around that issue is has been has been going on, you know, for has been building and, and coalescing for a long time. It's mature. It's rich. It's thick. It's deep. It's you know, Whereas the scientific, you know, you know the, the the questions and concerns around COVID and around the pandemic, uh, you know, were fresh, mm-hmm. were new. Uh, there wasn't that there wasn't and it isn't at least as far as I can tell. Uh, any kind of scientific consensus about what we were facing, what the optimal ways were of dealing with it. And to a large, I mean, is it, there are, I think, re, a reasonable case can be made and has been made, right? Perhaps wrongly, perhaps, you know, for bad reasons, for bad motives, but a reasonable case can be made and has been made that the response to the pandemic was catastrophic mm-hmm. and was and was in many ways a failure and in many ways made the problem worse not better and that it didn't actually you know there's that you know it didn't actually save uh the people it was intending to save in fact it may have you know that it that the effect of you know the lockdowns and masking and everything else yeah
1: masking of a three-year-old in particular you
0: know weren't exactly all that effective and of course the op you know the the opposite side wants to say well you know they, they immediately caricature one side or the other you know mm-hmm. you know one side, you know the the people who are criticizing kind of the uh you know kind of the orthodoxy are saying you know these are you know authoritarians and the other side is saying well you're just you're you know you're just callous and saying just let it rip you know through society um whereas there's a very there's a there's a uh you know, a, a very rich middle ground there, where people where people have tried to plant their feet, but have had difficulty doing so, uh, because of this tendency uh, to regard, you know, the scientists and experts um, in charge as having a, as treating them as if they are representing a scientific consensus that has been coalescing for decades and is mature and, uh, and and to and to that extent, uh, they can properly marginalize uh, dissenting voices. I mean, which is just not the case now. If the you know, argument, I mean, and it makes no sense to shut down speech in that regard when the issue is so eminently contested and contestable. Mm. I mean, so I mean, I think Mill would would see the uh, the way the the public debate surrounding what we were dealing with and how to respond to it, the way that unfolded, was to was deeply problematic. I think for anyone. Who takes you know Chapter Two of On Liberty uh, seriously? And I think if 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 it is the case that the you know that the the response to the pandemic was in many ways ineffectual, counterproductive, and had a vast array of perverse and unintended consequences, I mean I think Mill would you know say yeah, told you so.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, well, well, John, thank you. I've taken up a lot of your time, and I'd like to ask you now. This is the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now?
0: Oh yes, well I actually I am I am currently uh, working on a, a new project. Uh, hopefully it'll be a book. Um, I hope so.
1: We like that at the New Books Network. Yeah.
0: <laughs> hopefully uh, I, you, you never want to count you know uh, count chickens or pages before <laughs> before, <laughs> before they hatch or are written. Um, but I'm uh, working on a, a new project on the uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, who was a uh, 20th wow. century uh, analytic philosopher. Good for
1: you.
0: A philosopher of action, uh, a a project, you know, a a kind of a she is largely credited with kind of rediscovering uh, virtue ethics um, in moral theory. And I'm it's a project focused on her action theory as it as largely as it relates to the question of uh, human freedom or free will. So sticking sticking with the uh, topic of freedom, but kicking it up to a more one might say uh, metaphysical
1: level. Well that's wonderful. I think that American audiences need to know about her cuz she's she's well known in Britain but I think less so here. So so that mm-hmm. would be wonderful. And okay. with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, John Peter Diulio, author of Completely Free: The Moral and Political Vision of John Stuart Mill and thank you listeners and i recommend this book i read every word it's excellent and very timely he makes john Stuart mill not only a victorian but a man of our time and all time it was really very very good reading so thanks john thanks everyone bye-bye